Good afternoon, Minecrafters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 18, I think, Shifting Your Attitude Towards Pain. So I, I you know, put this down for a bit, this book I was, we were, uh, I brought up to you, we have been chatting about for a couple of episodes with the Shenpa situation, which I have to tell you is really stuck with me. If you haven't listened to those two episodes, you might want to go back because, wow, is that relatable? You know, that that sticky, just, uh, that's like, it's even better than using words to describe it. It's just that uh, feeling on the inside that kind of sticks to our rib cage and our bones and everything else. We just want, you know, to react. You know, somebody says something, we just feel that surge of, or we want to jump in and be right and all that. And that somehow, and then I, you know, I kind of, you know, went off in a different direction, reading some other books and everything. And then I picked it back up and it's interesting because this is not the same. So uh, don't worry about repeat here. It's, it continues, but it's different. Pima Chodron uh, talks about in her uh, book, Practicing Peace in Times of War, which is that timely or what? I'm just saying about how important it is to change our attitude toward pain. And the word change is good, adjust is good, shift is good, you know, because we are creatures of habit. And I think many people don't realize that habits aren't made or broken. They just shift. It's about, you know, changing the routine in the middle. You know, I think and part of this is habit and routine and part of it's just maybe inherent and part of it's society, I think. We just, as human beings, we don't like being uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable at the dentist. It can be mildly uncomfortable in a conversation with people we don't know or somebody we do know introduces us to people we don't know and then the dynamics change and nothing's really wrong. No one's, you know, stabbing us with, you know, a sharp blade or anything. It's just we're uncomfortable, mildly uncomfortable. And then we start you know, uh, becoming distracted, losing eye contact, then maybe consciously, you know, plan, planning the old beam me up, Scotty, to get out of that conversation or whatever. We just, as people, don't enjoy being uncomfortable, not even on the mildest, mildest level. And when we are uncomfortable, I think we instinctually just want out, you know, just, it's just that beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here, even if it's, you know, tolerable. And sort of the, the twofold thing here that we're talking about, the other thing we have going on is at least in the States, there is, and my students and I have talked about this actually, especially since, you know, the course Minecraft I'm, I bring up with you a lot about becoming the boss of our brain with uh, the path of happiness and, you know, the goal of happiness or ongoing goal of happiness, that there's a certain pressure to be happy. It's like happiness pressure. And it sounds like such you know, an oxymoron, you know, just contradiction in terms that we feel pressure to be happy. At least here we do. So uh, Pima says on this topic, she says on a very basic level, all beings think that they should be happy. When life becomes difficult or painful, we feel that something has gone wrong. This wouldn't be a big problem except for the fact that when we feel something's gone wrong, we're willing to do anything to feel okay again, even start a fight. You know, this kind of describes to me like an emotional splinter. 
you know, you have an actual wood splinter, even if it's a tiny little thing, it's, you, we can't think about anything else about getting that, except for getting that splinter out, at least for me, it'll just bug you, bug you, bug you. And it's kind of like when we have, you know, some sort of emotional discomfort, even that social, socially awkward moment that I was just describing. It's like, got to pull it out, got to pull it right now. Can't do anything else till we alleviate this excruciatingly painful awkwardness or whatever it is that that's, that's emotionally splintering us. Get it out now. Got to pull it out now. Where's the tweezers? And, you know, I will tell you something here, even though I do not identify as a Buddhist or, you know, someone who practices the Buddhist religion, I will gratefully, I mean, with an, a wide open, grateful heart, you know, latch on to anything while it's, you know, useful for inspiration from anywhere, anywhere, absolutely anywhere. And the Buddhists are really onto something with, you know, the whole suffering idea and the non-attachment, both of those. And because it's, I mean, it's right, right? We're not, it, no matter what religion or culture we look, you know, look at it around the world, somehow, some way, people have addressed the idea of suffering and what's the point, right? And, you know, sort of, you know, the whole purpose of us being on this earth, you know, is learning to love each other better, whether that's Christianity, Jesus said that, whether you're talking about, um, you know, the Muslim religion, you're talking about the Jewish religion, you're talking about Taoism and, you know, and whateverism, we're all saying the same thing. You know, it's about learning and growing and spiritually advancing, no matter which religion we're talking about. And when we're talking about, you know, spiritual growth, I think it's very difficult for anyone to see how that really happens without, you know, hitting some speed bumps along the way. You know, and obviously this even starts with small children. They, you know, they, they fall down, you know, pretty soon when they're, you know, starting to walk and they fall and they scrape a knee. Then they're a little older. Maybe they they get a goldfish goldfish. Well, maybe I haven't done so well with goldfish. I don't think goldfish have a, an incredibly long lifespan. That's, unless that's just me. Who's not good with them. But then they have to learn, you know, the goldfish dies and then higher up on the food chain, they might have a, have a cat for a pet and had the cat for, for years, maybe by the time they're a teenager. And then they have to experience death that way. And often by that time, you know, they might even have a grandparent, something happened to a grandparent. So little by little, you know, the, you know, these things are happening, suffering and, and death and loss and things that just, and, 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 you know, of course, heartache, speaking of teenagers, inevitably we all get broken up with at some point or other, you know, things um, and things happen that aren't fair, which is very hard for children to understand. I think it's hard for some of us adults to understand too. You know, it's, it's hard to understand when things just aren't fair. You know, you're playing, let's say you're playing the game by the rules and you're listening and, you know, abiding by all the rules. And then, you know, somebody just cheats or something happens or something is stolen and which we, we just can't wrap our heads around it. And these, with these things, um, Again, they just they just happen, and they help us to grow. So, so Pima says, even like, you know, on the, on the severe end with the loss and illness, and God forbid somebody's in a car accident and loses a limb, or you, you have some loss via, you know, finding out you have diabetes, you know, whatever it is. Um, she says, but the Buddhist teachings also say that this, you know, this is not really what causes us misery in our lives. Think about that, because... This is deep. You know, a lot of people could think, what do you mean it isn't that really bad phone call I got about, you know, a medical test that came up, you know, positive or, you know, the loss, again, the loss of a limb or, 
um, you know, God forbid again that the the phone call about from a state trooper about a death, a car accident. What do you mean? That isn't what causes us misery. But she says, no, the Buddhist says that this is not what causes us misery in our lives. What causes misery is always trying to get away from the facts of life, always trying to avoid pain and seek happiness. This sense of ours that, that, that there could be lasting security and happiness available to us if we could only do the right thing. This is what, according to Buddhism, they say actually makes us miserable. I think it's fascinating. So even as I sit here, as I, I think you've, you've all probably realized by this point, I'm not much of a linear thinker. Uh, very, in my head just went, and there, these other books are not even in front of me right now. Right away, I'm thinking of two of my, of my favorite, uh, well, my favorite psychologist, Viktor Frankl. Actually, I have two. I also like Abraham Maslow. Viktor Frankl, though, is definitely my number one. And he's the one, of course, all, that he, all about man's search for meaning, right? When he wrote that book about being in the Nazi concentration camps and his just the, the whole blow by blow of the daily, how he dealt with that and, and talk about suffering. And he just didn't, he didn't reside there. But the thing is, just like Pima saying in her book, and, I, and such extreme measures that most of us can't even fathom, you know, can't even fathom. He he did what she's saying. He didn't push it away and, oh, no, not me, not, no, no, no. He did the opposite. He kind of rode the wave with it. And it sounds like such a lighthearted way to say that. I just don't know how else to describe it. And in, in many ways, actually embraced. And we're talking about intense suffering, not a sprained ankle. And and he, he just, he, he just came out, I don't hesitate to say the word enlightened, I almost don't feel qualified, right? He just had this just amazing, talk about coming out in a place of post-traumatic growth, which is also very Marty Seligman. I feel like I'm being flooded with the great thinkers here. Uh, the man search for meaning, that, that, that wrapping around all that suffering is like, at least if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to make it worth it. I'm, it's going to have meaning because I'm coming out on top. And that is what I love so much about Victor Frankl. So they kind of came into mind, my mind very close together. Victor Frankl, and then kind of similar, but in a, in a similar but different, John Cabot Zinn, right? The, one of the biggest mindfulness gurus for me is the biggest. I'm sure there are other ones close. I think most people, when you think of mindfulness, we go straight to John Cabot Zinn. And when he, you know, when he talks about, you know, um, even on a, I don't want to say lesser scale, but it's, it's not okay to minimize anybody's suffering. So Victor Frankl, you know, living through, you know, Auschwitz, and I'm not sure if that was the exact one, but concentration camps. And then we have, you know, people suffering daily with anxiety. Is it good to keep it in perspective? Yes. Is it, do we need to minimize our own suffering? Absolutely not, because it's all relative. And John Kabat-Zinn is all about wrapping around the anxiety and inviting it in when we are mindful. And that seems so counterintuitive for the reasons we were just saying. No one, I shouldn't say no one, that's a big polarized word. Most of us don't enjoy being uncomfortable, never mind actively inviting anxiety in the door or even depressed thoughts in the door. Like it just doesn't make, it's counterintuitive to most of our thinking. And yet the Buddhists are saying, you know, bring it on. You know, and, and specifically to pain here, 
I'm not sure if I mentioned this in previous episodes because I'm not sure if it would have been my focus. Uh, the audition, you know, John Kabat-Zinn is probably the top name again that I know with mindfulness. He's been in it for, I don't even know this, at least four decades. I wouldn't even attempt that one. It's most of his life. And he started a, a, a clinic in um, in Boston at a hospital to, uh, to for people with chronic physical pain. So we're not even talking about emotional pain. I'm sure that's there too. We're talking about chronic physical pain can't stand it, nails on a chalkboard pain, because if you know about nerve pain, it can't really be medicated. Nerves don't really respond. You can use steroids and, you know, make inflammation come down and things like that. But it's not like taking antibiotics for an abscessed tooth where it vanishes until you run out of antibiotics. If you didn't have the tooth taken care of, then it comes right back, right? Nerve pain is different. So people who have, have experienced accidents and have you know, uh, vertebrae issues or whatever kind of nerve damage or degenerative nerve stuff or whatever, they, they're living with this, with this every single day, low grade pain, high grade pain. I don't know how they would stand it. And so John, they originally came to his pain clinic and then he's doing all this mindfulness stuff with inviting the physical pain in, like with a welcome mat, you know, come on in, sit on the couch. Can I get you a lemonade? You know, kind of thing. And lo and behold, the high, high, high majority of people who have gone through John Kabat-Zinn's programs to reduce their physical pain have reported far, far, far less pain, like significantly less pain. And, you know, really has me thinking, you know, I've been kind of studying John Kabat-Zinn for a while and now reading Pima's work, which I had not done until my my friend gave me this for my birthday. And I'm thinking like, wow, thank you to the universe for kind of dropping this in my lap because it's kind of building on it on itself. And I'm thinking, I, I think this is just such a good message right now. Something that I'm really kind of feeling ready to wrap my head around. So um, Pima goes on to say, she says in this very lifetime, we can do ourselves and this planet a great favor and turn this very old way of thinking upside down. As Shanti Deva points out, suffering has a great deal to teach us. If we use the opportunity when it arises, suffering will motivate us to look for answers. Many people, including myself, came to the spiritual path because of deep unhappiness. Suffering can also teach us empathy for others who are in the same boat. Oh, spot on. Sing it, sister. Furthermore, suffering can humble us. Even the most arrogant among us can be softened by the loss of someone dear. Wow. I just thought of something else and it fits. So I'm going to run with it right now. I'm thinking about this. She's talking about, um, you know, the furthermore, you know, suffering can humble us, right? Even the most arrogant among us can be softened by the loss of someone dear. That's wild. I'm thinking of somebody I knew years ago. It's been, oh gosh, it's been ages before, and I, before since I've seen him. And I'm just thinking this person, if I had to guess looking back as a very seasoned adult, was more than likely buried under a pile of heavy shame. A pile of heavy shame. Wasn't honestly all that likable. Um, not dishonest or anything, actually very honest, but just not very likable. Kind of hid behind his money, kind of an elitist kind of uh, arrogant and kind of looking down on people. Um, 
just honestly, just, just not that likable. And then he went through a series, as they say with that old, the book series, right? a series of unfortunate events. Some big life things happened, including a really ugly, ugly, ugly divorce and a lot of loss that experience. And it just was a few years of just, you know, you know, uh, some bad cards dealt, I guess you could say. And wow, I remember, um, he, you know, and this person obviously was in there because we don't just show up like that, just buried beneath shame. And all of a sudden, this likable, it was very, it sounds like it was overnight. Well, it was almost overnight, actually. And likable, more pleasant, affectionate, kinder person was there because all of a sudden, you know, all those crutches were ripped out from under his armpits and he had, he needed people. He was vulnerable and had to depend more emotionally. I mean, cause his, his money was still there, had to depend on other people. And, um, wow. I just thought of that right now. There was, there was a lot of truth in that. Uh, suffering can be very humbling, especially if we're under the you know illusion that we don't need people because that is an illusion. We all need people. You know, I'll tell you, of course, at a season 56, this, this kind of dialogue, especially with uh, my best friend from, from childhood, who I, I talk about occasionally, the one who gave me this book, actually, this is part of our ongoing mid fifties conversation. You know, we're constantly saying now, you know, what, you know, where's the spiritual lesson in this? And then, and then we make jokes. <laughs> I definitely do. And she does too. Um, you know, when we we're getting the same lesson over and over again, and she and I both have our, they're not the same. We both have a main theme of, these spiritual lessons, sometimes I, I'm just not getting mine or she's just not getting hers. And we're saying, okay, whatever it is that just, you know, that curveball that life threw at us, what is the meaning in this? What's the meaning in this? I thought I learned this lesson already, but apparently I haven't because it's back again. It might be somebody, you know, same person wearing a different outfit or a situation. And this is actually part of our dialogue with looking for the deeper meaning in whatever it is going on. And, you know, this actually has me thinking of something funny um, with my best friend from college at St. Mike's. She is, she, she's amazing. And I uh, spent a great deal of time with her whole family from the age of, you know, 8, 19, I guess we were on to this day. And we are still in touch you know, pretty much every few days. And her brother, I became friends with, he also went to college with us, uh, became, you know, close kind of outside, you know, all together, but also outside of each other. He loved to have coffee for hours and just discuss all these deep topics. And he's hysterical. Well, I saw him sort of recently. It was a couple of years ago. So now he's a year younger than me, I think. Let's say, let's say two years. He's probably 54 by now. We were having a talk very similar to this one that we are discussing today. And he said, oh, my God. He calls me Kimmer. Oh, my God, Kimmer. I can't believe you're saying that about you know, suffering in these, you know, the universe teaching us these lessons over and over. He said, I can't believe you're saying this because at work, he's just the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. At work, I have, I, there's just, there's a couple, they're just a couple of annoying. They're just so annoying. These people are just so annoying. My colleagues, I don't get why people do these things and say these things and why they, you know, are actively being mean or whatever. And it's just gotten to, it got to a point where I said, I said, I just prayed out loud. He said, God, please help me learn how to deal with annoying people better. Just I'm losing my mind. Help me. Please help me learn how to deal with annoying people better. And then he looks over to me and he said, what do you think the universe sent me? 
I said, what? What, Randy? He said, more annoying people. I mean, that's exactly the message right there. You know, it, it just, the universe keeps tossing it at us until we, until we pass the test. You know, it's kind of like, I'm thinking of Mr. Circle in my senior high school. I know I'm, I, that's how, I, that's where my head goes. He gave quizzes. He's one of my, probably could be my favorite teacher ever pre-college. He would allow us because physics is hard and so is life, right? So here's the analogy, right? Here's spiritual lessons and physics. He would allow a student to take the, Quizzes were out of 10 points, and there were like 20 of them for the whole semester or something like that. And you could take them over and over and over again as much as you wanted to. They would be the same content. Obviously, the questions changed around because you could just memorize that. He was a very good teacher. But but they they weren't set to trick you. You would If you knew it, you got it, and you would keep going up. And he, he didn't average them. He swapped them out. So if you got a 6 out of 10 the first time, you got an 8 the night, he just kept doing it, and he took your highest one. Well, to me, that's kind of like, you know, once you got it and you wanted to stick with the nine or you went for the 10 or whatever, but you knew that whatever the chapter was in physics, Newton's laws or whatever, that when you finally took it for the fifth time, you just kind of like, oh my God, I'm like almost, you got it so much you were sick of it, but you got it. And to me, that taking the quiz thing as many times as you want, it's kind of like what my, my, uh, my best friend from growing up. And I talk about a lot and also the best friend from college, actually, they're both and they know each other. Um, very, two very, very wise, self-aware women. And we talk about this, like, why can't I, it's like, I need to be hit over, hit, hit over the head with a sledgehammer or something to get the point. And then once we actually, whatever it is, you know, get it, then it's like, then we can move on. You know, and that said, I think that you know, the hap- as far as the, the, you know, this, this idea that many people kind of have their, have their set point. Like we have one for weight and we have, you know, the happiness set point that on, you know, things should be going well. That's, that's a word that I would delete out of my vocabulary. Should. It's a very rigid way of thinking or something's wrong. And I have to move and tap dance and pivot like crazy to make, you know, to make sure that, you know, things are going well all the time. Another phrase to get out of our vocabulary, because things that don't exist in life, I'm thinking shouldn't be in our language, right? No one, everything, always nothing, all the time, never, right? Should. And so it's like this pressure instead of instead of doing what's counterintuitive and be like, okay, I got thrown a curveball and going to breathe deeply and roll with it. And so Pima says, you know, yet it's so basic in us to feel that things should go well for us and that if we start and that if we start to feel depressed, lonely or inadequate, then there's been some kind of mistake or we've lost it. I feel like we've lost our groove or something like that. In reality, when you feel depressed, lonely, betrayed or any unwanted feelings, this is an important moment on the spiritual path. This is where real transformation can take place. I agree with her. And I think in positive psychology, now uh, the course I've designed, again, Minecraft, uh, I actually have to explain this to students because sometimes if I directly ask them, they kind of know, I think maybe it's my tone and pitch, but I, however, I think some of them think that, you know, uh, Minecraft or, you know, the basis for positive psychology is positive emotion all the time. Nothing happens all the time and nothing, nothing's another word to get rid of, right? Even the sun 
will rise and set pretty predictably, but eventually it'll be a supernova. So that won't even be happening all the time. And also with Minecraft or again, positive psychology, that how important it is to let ourselves feel, how important it is to have the full human experience. It's not about, um, you know, kind of numbing ourselves to negative feelings. And in fact, you know, the opposite is true. We need to, we need to feel because that's part of what makes us human and we need to sit with it. And certainly in our midlife, I'll tell you my, those two best women friends I just told you about, I love, we, we love to process um, all this going on. I think honestly, that's what midlife is for. And then Pima goes on to say, you know, she says, as long as we're caught up in always looking for certainty and happiness, rather than honoring the taste and smell and quality of exactly what is happening, as long as we're always running away from discomfort, and we do run from discomfort, right? We're going to be caught in a cycle of unhappiness and disappointment and we'll feel weaker and weaker. Wow. And again, you know, this comes back to that part, that component of mindfulness, which which could be my favorite, actually. Since with my ADHD, again, we have a, you know, I tell my husband, he, he has a better chance of seeing the good Lord himself than me sitting still for very long. And again, I think sitting's overrated. So I love mindfulness because we can move with it. And the other main reason I like it, in addition to, you know, being in the power of now is the non-judgment part, because, and this goes hand in hand with this meaning of suffering thing is just acknowledgement, because when we acknowledge it, you know, and, and we then we're fully present with it. We're fully living, and the the pain actually dissipates. The anxiety dissipates, and I think it's important to really acknowledge acknowledge that of the sitting with it thing, the non judgment, the feeling, the feeling, and staying in the moment. I guess you know what I'm finding amazing here, amazing, and, and just because it's so true. And I think honestly, we seasoned folks get this. You know. We start to get this hopefully by now, but it's it's it goes back to that the you know the, the Carl Jung quote that I toss around when I can is that which we resist will persist, and it's just so true. And again, I'm not saying it's easy; it's so not easy. If it were easy, we'd be doing it it at you know six instead of fifty six, right? It's not easy because it's counterintuitive. It goes against what our minds are are telling us. Our minds are saying. Oh, we're anxious. Oh, we're scared. Dig in, grab on, hold on. Like, like you're water skiing in the rope and, you know, just, you know, survive the waves in the wake of the back of the boat, blah, 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 blah. hang on for dear life. You know, that's what our minds are doing out of, out of fear and also familiarity, I think. And then Pima continues to say that this way of seeing helps us to develop inner strength. And what's especially encouraging is the view that inner strength is available to us at just the moment when we think we've hit the bottom, when things are at their worst. And I know, you know, when things are at their worst, we'd much rather flip out, right? We'd much rather be in amygdala overdrive and just be in this crazed frenzy than than actually dropping in, as John Kabat-Zinn calls it, dropping in. And he literally can be in the middle of a conversation and just his eyes sink. And his pulse is probably, you know, 12 beats a minute. He just sinks because he's so advanced at this. And it's amazing. And then, uh, then, you know, Pima goes on and she says, instead of asking ourselves, 
how can I find security and happiness? We could ask ourselves, how can I touch the center of my pain? Can I sit with suffering, both yours and mine, without trying to make it go away? Can I stay present to the ache of loss or disgrace, disappointment in all its forms, and let it open me? This, Pima says, is the trick. And where my mind is going right now with this actually is this week, because we just started the uh, semester. And, and with my Minecrafters, we always, of course, start with mindfulness the first day. They're just getting into it. We get into it more along the way. And then the next class, we uh, got into active listening and how mindfulness works into active listening. And so we talked about what does it mean to actively listen? So they said they came up with, you know, eye contact, body posturing, nodding, smiling, repeating back with detail what the person said. Um, and then we got into what gets in the way of listening, right? And it's thinking about what we're going to say next, all the stressors in life, anxiety, blah, 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 blah. And then we got into how, how did you feel when somebody really, truly heard you? And we're talking like Pima says, touch the center of your pain. When somebody really, like as if they crawled into your rib cage when your heart was broken, that trusted, safe person, how did, how did that feel for you? And right away, it rolls out of them. Relieved, less alone, validated. I feel okay now. I feel enough. I mean, it just rolled out of them because even at 18 or 19 years old, most of them have had something happen, right? And that, that trusted person touched the center of their pain and helped them to sit with their pain. And the answer, you know, their answers to how did that feel were relieved, validated, less alone, loved, part of things, cared about, and a feeling of enough and standing on solid ground once again. And then Pima goes on to say, she talks about our barriers here, kind of like the walls we put up. It's so spot on accurate. There are various ways to view what happens when we feel threatened. When we're amygdala overdrive, right? In times of distress, of rage, of frustration, of failure, we can look at how we get hooked and how Shenpa escalates. If you remember, we, we've been talking about Shenpa the last, well, not the last one, but the couple before that. This Shenpa Tibetan word that means, you know, that, that urge to just react, whether it's verbally or, or physically or, you know, whatever, it's that urge to just, to just dig in at somebody. And this escalates. And then she says, it can also be helpful to shift our focus and look at how we put up barriers. Isn't that the truth? Freud would call these defense mechanisms. In these moments, we could observe how we withdraw. We do that too in avoidant behavior, right? And become self-absorbed. We become dry, sour, afraid. We crumble or harden out of fear that more pain is coming. In some old familiar way, we automatically erect a protective shield and our self-centeredness intensifies. And boy, that was a lot in one short paragraph because we do, right? We put up shields, I think like Fort Knox or a, a castle. And that brings my mind to Ireland. When I was with, uh, in Ireland with uh, that fabulous woman friend I just told you about from college. And the castle tours, let me just tell you, they are not made for princesses. I'll tell you that right now. Whoa, brutal. 
And they're, you know, they're meant castles. Like they kept saying to us, the guides castles were meant to keep, to keep everything out except what was wanted on the inside. And I picture like the castle walls that we just put up. And again, you know, as we mentioned, you know, in a different episode is sadly with those walls, you know, we can block out all the hurt, potential pain, potential, whatever's out there that could hurt us again and, and, and open and open more wounds or cause new wounds. Sadly, those castle walls, those emotional castle walls that we build also keep out the good stuff, you know, the love and the, and the vulnerability and the trust and all those awesome relationships that are so wonderfully warm and snuggly. Um, they block all out. They block out the good stuff as well. Okay. So here comes the twist in the story, kind of what, what we can do. Pima says, but this is in this very same moment when we're busy building the, the moats and everything, right? She's in this very same moment when we could, uh, we could do something different right on the spot through practice we can get very familiar with the barriers that we put up around our hearts and around our whole being. We can become intimate with just how we hide out, doze off, and freeze up. And that intimacy, coming to know these barriers so well, is what begins to dismantle them. I love that. As we begin to know these barriers so well, that's when we begin, when we begin to dismantle them, we begin, when we begin to take apart the castle wall, brick by brick. And then she says, amazingly, when we give them our full attention, they start to fall apart. Now, I like this, um, how Pima gets into, um, you know, we have our, we have our, you know, shining star parts and we have our messy parts. It's just kind of how I put it to my kids. And I say, it's just, it's really important to focus on our shining star parts. It doesn't mean we don't acknowledge our messy parts. Sometimes we have to apologize for behavior that, you know, emanates from our messy parts. And it's still important not to, not to stay focused on the messy parts, but to stay focused on our shining star parts. And I like how Pima says, you know, if we want to go through life with all those walls, I mean, go right ahead. Basically, she says, you can cruise through life, not letting anything touch you. But if you really want to live fully, if you want to enter into life, enter into genuine relationships with other people, with animals, with the world situation, you're definitely going to have the experience of feeling provoked, of getting hooked on Shenpa. Again, that that's the error of wanting to react. You're not going, you're not just going to feel bliss. The message is that when those feelings emerge, this is not a failure. This is the chance to cultivate Maitri, which means a word that refers to unconditional friendliness toward both your perfect and imperfect self. I love that. And, you know, I really love how, how Pima embraces the whole self. Like in my words, not just the shining star parts, but the messy parts, right? And and she says, um, you know, obviously it's, it's tough to embrace the messy parts. And so she says the qualities that are toughest to be kind to are the painful parts where we feel ashamed as if we don't belong, as if we've just blown it when things are falling apart for us. And she says, Maitri means sticking with ourselves when we don't have anything, when we feel like a loser. And it becomes the basis for extending the same unconditional friendliness to others. I love this self-love and then it flows. We can, we can start spreading the love to other people. So this, 
this is a fabulous place to kind of have a natural closure with um, embracing the whole self, including the shiny star star parts and the messy parts, and uh, you know the the self the, the self acceptance, self love, and how this then emanates to those around us, our family and friends and strangers. Think about what they can do for the world, right? So this is a great place to stop. So I will say to all my Minecrafters across the United States and world, thank you for listening. And uh, this is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm -hmm.